we began last week by our sort of trying to introduce this topic, trying to discern how the Bible uh, talks about us as Christians, and that there are actually discernible uh, steps or logical sort of ideas that occur in us that just in the very order themselves unpack some really, really beautiful riches about what it means for us to uh, rejoice as Christians. Uh, and so last week we introduced you to the term, uh, the Latin term, ordo salutis, uh, which simply means the order of salvation. Everybody's like, well, why wouldn't you just say order of salvation? Well, because if you know the Latin, you can condescend to other people at parties. Um, <laughs> and after all, isn't that what it's all about? Uh, sounding much more knowledge than, knowledgeable than someone else. But we looked at this order of salvation and we tried to give it a little bit of a, a put some flesh on it a bit. Um, there are these discernible steps that we can identify that occur logically. It's not necessarily a chronological order of salvation, but more of a logical order that tries to identify what must be present before others are present. I mentioned last week that for a lot of people, they just don't like the idea that someone made a list out of these things. Coming to Christ, being a Christ is a mystery. Being in Christ is a mystery. And why would we sort of put it in this sort of list? It feels like, I don't know, just a little too constrictive or, 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 or uh, academic, scholarly. Well, one of the reasons, one of the things that I think I can commend to you that will show you that we're not going to approach it that way is our first topic. Um, and I feel like it's so important we're actually going to do it uh, twice. And that is the topic of union with Christ. Union with Christ is for uh, for anyone who does this study will agree, isn't necessarily a step in the process. In many ways, it encompasses the entire thing. I introduced you last week to the book called Redemption, Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. Uh, John Murray actually puts union with Christ at the very end of his list because he says, look, after you've looked at each one of these steps, you've got to realize that you can enfold the entire thing in this great concept of union with Christ. Um, I decided to put it at the beginning because I think there's riches here that'll help us uh, keep perspective as we move through the rest of them. Um, but I will warn you <laughs> that of all of the topics that we sort of um, uh, wrestle with, this one is probably the most mysterious and the most challenging to try to define. Uh, and I can guarantee you it's challenging to try to illustrate We've had some attempts. I've had some great help along the way that I'll get to in, uh, in just a second. Uh, I'm really uh, grateful for my friend Brian Habig, who uh, did a great sermon a number of years ago in Romans 6. That you would love to, uh, you do well to look up. He's the pastor of Downtown Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. I've, I've uh, borrowed from him liberally, as well as from a friend of mine uh, who wrote a book about this topic. But uh, Habig brought up something that I've actually heard of before but that a lot of people have never done any work on. And that is um, something that therapists have begun to identify that they refer to as battered wife syndrome. That's kind of a depressing topic, but um, it turns out that there are actually a cluster of symptoms in a marriage where the husband uh, is abusing the other. Um, when the husband sort of takes on a, a, an argumentative, uh, sort of violent posture towards their spouse, we find that there are actually things that occur uh, uh, very regularly in this kind of uh, s uh, system. 
One of the things that strikes therapists the most curiously is how often um, the wife, in the midst of the abuse, will have trouble getting out of that abusive relationship for this reason, and a strange reason that you might see, because you would look at that and say, well, just get out. You've got to get out of there. But how often find abused wives will say that they feel like fundamentally it's their fault? Battered wife syndrome sort of ends up coming with this idea that any onlooker to their marriage would say is absurd. You, you would look at someone who's in a marriage like this and you would say, look, don't you get it? How in the world could you ever refer to this as your fault? <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. Like, you don't deserve this. You're not the cause of this person's behavior. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. And yet, over and over and over, researchers, researchers are finding that these women identify with that part of this question. Now, here's my question. Why? How is that possible? Why is it that someone can get into a situation which to every single person around them is obvious, but that to the person who's in the midst of it uh, feels incredibly the exact opposite? And before you get condescending to be like, well, I'm glad I'm not in that kind of marriage, you do it every single day. <laughs> Why? Because of this great fact, and I'm borrowing Habig's um, uh, sentence here. And this is what I really want you to remember for the, for the next two weeks. I'm, this lesson is so big that I'm going to split it up into two because it's got a lot of importance to it. Narrative fuels lifestyle. Narrative fuels lifestyle. How is it that I live the life that I live? What is the perspective that I bring to any decision that I make, any problem that I seek to solve, uh, any encounter that I have with other people, any self-reflective thought that I have? What is it that's really driving that? And the answer to that is, there's a story that you are believing about yourself that colors, shadows, I would even say for the purpose of this question of battered wife syndrome, filters through every piece of information that comes down the pike towards you. You have a mental figure, a worldview, if you will, that encompasses yourself, that is occupied by a story that you're believing about yourself. And so therefore, when I'm wondering why it is that my life is going the way that it's going, when I'm wondering why people are being so antagonistic towards me, when I'm wondering what it is that I'm going to do next week to make life actually get better for me, if it's at all possible, somewhere in the midst of that conversation, if you do not ask the question, wait a minute, what story, what narrative am I believing about myself that is fueling the way that I'm looking at this question? Now look, um, th this is not only sort of a big topic for us to understand this next part of the, of the uh, Ordo Salutis, but it's also a big topic to talk about how Christians think about dealing with issues in their lives. We don't think the same way that the world does because for Christians, our identity is fundamental to how we behave. And I would make a pitch, not for this particular sermon, but I'll throw this out as a little teaser, that we're the only world religion that does this. In every other world religion, if you want to be a part of that religion, you're given, as it were, a list of things to do. 
You want to be a Buddhist? Here's what you do. You want to sort of be Muslim? Here are the five pillars. If you want to be a, a, a Jew, here's the things you must practice. Only in Christianity do you have that completely reversed, where instead what, what we offer in Christianity is, here's a brand new identity, a completely different story about yourself that was won on your behalf outside of yourself. And in the great transformation of that moment, from that idea, we then look at how we are to live. That, look, that's not just the difference between moralism and, and gospel-centered uh, growth. That's the difference between Christianity and every world religion. Every world religion is different there. Narrative fuels lifestyle. In other words, what we tell ourselves about ourselves is incredibly powerful and worthy, if quite frankly, of any good conversation between two Christians. It's a fabulous question to get to when you're interacting with someone. What story about yourself are you believing this week? And by the way, it changes every week. I don't know about you, but mine goes different, flip-flops every other day, depending on how it is. Look, here's the point. We're looking at this great gem that theologians call order, the Ordo Salutis. But this first idea immediately identifies that great topic. What is the narrative of the Christian life? How does the Bible tell me about myself? What am I supposed to think about myself? What am I supposed to tell myself about myself? Well, as we start to look at this, I want to warmly commend to you uh, two fantastic books about this topic. Uh, the first is by a guy named Rankin Wilburn, and it's called, conveniently enough, Union with Christ. Um, Rankin, interestingly enough, is uh, a Mississippian by birth. Uh, he went to Ole Miss, believe it or not. Uh, was a KA here, uh, doggone it, for all you KAs out there. Not sure why that's important for you to know, but I thought about it. Uh, Rankin and I were actually at Alpine camp together uh, back in uh, uh, the early parts of, uh, uh, back in 1993, the early 90s. Uh, James Harper was a part of all that crew. Well, Rankin goes on and makes a big name for himself. He's now the pastor of one of the best sort of churches in LA, I would argue, uh, at Pacific Crossroads. And Rankin wrote an incredibly helpful an incredibly easy book to understand about this. If you're looking for the best popular treatment that's been written today, uh, Rankin Wilburn's Union with Christ is right up there uh, uh, with them. I would uh, very warmly commend, you, uh, commend that to you. Uh, and I'm borrowing the outline from his book for my outline for these next two weeks uh, and stealing his illustrations. Not as if they were my own, because I'm telling you now that they're not my own. The second one is a book by Sinclair Ferguson called The Whole Christ. Uh, this would be for those of you who want to get a little bit more. Uh, Sinclair is not always the easiest to read, but I can guarantee you he's the most clear. Uh, if you really start to dive into this and want to sort of tease out the way in which uh, Christians understand what it means to embrace salvation, uh, this is the best thing that's been written in the last 20 years on that topic. So uh, Sinclair Ferguson, The Whole Christ, uh, is the topic. So what I want to do this morning is just ask a couple of questions. First of all, what is union with Christ? What is it? How do we understand it? Like you keep using that phrase less, but I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then secondly, where did we get this? Um, where from the Bible can we go uh, to really understand uh, this topic? And so I want to finish with a little bit of Bible study, and then we're going to end our time this morning with a special treat uh, that you can wait for. Uh, so we've got the, the young kids coming in to recite for us this morning, uh, which will be a 
just trying to keep you guessing in Sunday school. If this gets eso too esoteric, we'll have a break with some young children that'll help us uh, think through it, okay? All right, so, so union with Christ. Let's start with this first question. What do we mean when we say, what is union with Christ? Well, we've got to start somewhere. So let's, let's start with this simple phrase. Union with Christ means that you are in Christ and that Christ is in you, okay? You are in Christ and Christ is in you. In other words, the Bible says that, that, that profoundly and deeply between you and Jesus, there is a, an intimate, powerful, we could use the word familial, it's like family. Uh, we could use uh, uh, the word intimate as if it was calling back images of our own marriages. Whether we are happily or unhappily married at this stage, there is a deepness of knowing that occurs in marriage that is powerful, is it not? That, that they can be uncomfortably close uh, to us in knowing us. And what the Bible is saying is, is marriage was given to us as an image of that union <clears throat> that God actually wanted us to be connected to Him. Connected to Him. What kind of illustrations would come up in your mind if someone said that you were connected to Jesus? What would you draw out? The interesting thing about the idea of union with Christ, <clears throat> in John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, in his chapter on union with Christ, the very first thing he says when defining union with Christ is he says you have to realize that it's very mysterious. So in order to define it, you've got to own at the beginning that it's really tough. He said, so mysterious is it, is that the Bible doesn't always give us like, <clears throat> therefore, union with Christ is dot, 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 and fill in the blank, and now we have the definition. The Bible hardly ever works that way. Instead, what we get throughout the Scripture are these what, uh, <clears throat> what uh, um, uh, John Murray calls similitudes, <laughs> just analogies, ideas that we get to understand union with Christ. And he says they come all over the New Testament. Union with Christ, we find, is like the connection between a man and a woman in marriage, like we've just said. Union with Christ is like the relationship that a child has to his parents, one of utter dependency. Union with Christ is like the relationship of a vine to a branch, John chapter 15. A vine drawing all of that life-giving sap off of the branch so that it can continue to live and to grow. Union with Christ, finally, is pictured for us in this unbelievable idea that between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, exists a union and a closeness that has always existed from before time. And we, being in Christ, in union with Him, have in our eventuality for our long-term future to be together with the rest of the members of the Godhead in the way in which they are together. Now look, you're not thinking if that is not starting to bake your noodle. Um, th th that's a freaky thought. But God is going to scoop us into this inter-Trinitarian dance of love, C.S. Lewis said, to show how connected we are. Um, union with Christ means that you're in Christ and Christ is in you. Um, so um, Rankin tells this great story about a friend of his who for a summer was Mickey Mouse. Um, and why isn't Mickey coming up on the screen? He's supposed to be there. Go back now. Oh, man, look at that. Where's Errol? Can I blame it on Errol? He's not even here this morning. You know, you try to count on him. and 
Is it back up? There we go. All right. You've got to see my picture of Mickey. There we go. Play that right there. Yes, on this phone. Thank you very much. What are you doing? There we go. People on the, on the recording are like, what is he doing? Ah, there we go. The illustration is so much better if you can get to see Mickey. Um, so that's right. That's right. So, all right. So, um, so his friend was Mickey Mouse for a summer. In other words, there are these characters, in case you didn't know, for those of you who go to Disneyland, that's not the real Mickey Mouse. Uh, it's someone dressed up like Mickey Mouse, not to destroy your life. Um, but anyway, but, but his friend actually wrote Rankin a letter to talk about what it was like uh, growing up in this, uh, uh, or living for a summer in this suit, and she, of reflecting on her time in Mickey. Um, bear with me, this is good. She says, growing up, I thrived on behavior modification. She said, when I looked at my life about how I was supposed to live, I thought about it in terms of behavior modification. That is, if I'm good, I'll be loved. If I'm bad, I'll be rejected. That's behavior modification. That's how that works. I learned, therefore, to wear a mask, to not show everyone what exactly was going on inside of me. Anybody relate to this? My core beliefs were that I was not worthy, accepted, or loved, so I would clamor. You know what clamor is. Clamor, you know, you just have a loudness to your personality because you need that attention. And manufacture ways to elicit positive responses that I wanted from people. Hmm. But (laughs) when I put on Mickey's costume, I got that positive response times a hundred. She said, what was so weird about putting on that big old mask was that suddenly people would turn and look at her and race to her with this incredibly loving, appreciative, sort of uh, almost uh, magnetic glow about them. She was Mickey. And in the midst of that, she said, I felt safe. I felt loved in his righteousness. I was borrowing off of Mickey's righteousness for my own because of the credibility that he had built up. I told you this was a good illustration. But she said, I gained a new sense of what it meant to be in Christ because I realized that what the goal is, is to so put on Christ that the world now sees me, at least in my head, the way in which I see Jesus. That I am to be looked at by the world by the way the world looks at Jesus. Why? Because I am in Him. And if you really want to find out about me, go find out about Him. You cannot understand yourself until you see yourself in Him. The point is, when you become a Christian, your story gets enfolded into another story. Or shall we say, another's story. In other words, what Paul says is this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Isn't that a weird way to talk? I I think I read this verse a thousand times before I really started grappling with it in this idea of union with Christ. What do you mean you don't live? Of course you live. Of course you're alive. How is he writing this? But he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. More on that in the weeks to come. But what's the point? She's saying that there's a brand new identity that came to me. My story, my narrative, my personal history 
has now been rolled up into the personal history of another. And I do not reflect rightly on my own story until I am full of the idea of his story. Which is why Christians get preoccupied with hearing about Jesus. Which is why we sing songs by saying that when I look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In other words, if you walk away from your time with Christ more preoccupied with yourself, you might not be dealing with the Christian Jesus. What happens to Christians is they become so enamored of who he is that they begin to see the world through his eyes. You've heard me in years past uh, sort of um, beat the drum of Brene Brown. (laughs) Uh, Go look up The Shame Lady uh, on YouTube. Her uh, TED Talk on shame uh, is one of the most viewed YouTube videos of all time. Certainly one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time. And what she talks about is how much we long for this connectedness with each other. We long to feel connected. And she defines what connectedness is. She said there is something uplifting that happens in you when you begin to see the world through another person's eyes. You ever walked away from some some other person and just felt refreshed by the mere presence of that person? I would argue that the reason why you do is because of what Brene Brown says, that you walked away and thought to yourself, they saw the world through my eyes. They get me. That person just gets me. Every time I'm with them, I I walk away just refreshed. They understand what's going on. When you achieve that moment, you will feel connected to that person. And so for that reason, that's what the Bible is saying. It's not just that Jesus can see the world through your eyes. He did that 2,000 years ago. He came so that he could have a sense of appreciation, you know, that he could sort of be tempted in all the same ways in which we are tempted, yet without sin. But he comes to experience our lives. We can see the world through our eyes, but... (laughs) It also means that we see the world through his eyes. And for our purposes this morning, see ourselves through his eyes. Look, um, imagine, imagine uh, Rankin tells this great story about two different kinds of superheroes. You know, you got Batman and Spider-Man. Very different, are they not? Batman is what he is because of his toys, is he not? He's got a cool utility belt. He's got a, he's got a great car. Apparently, he's got a motorcycle and everything else, and a helicopter even, uh, from the latest movies that we've seen from Batman. Batman is who he is because of the attachments to his life. Spider-Man's different, though, isn't he? Spider-Man actually has, has, been, has been infused, as it were, with a radioactive, I don't know, spider bite or something, right? The power is inside him. It's something that's functioning inside his actual veins. Union with Christ is a good bit more like Spider-Man than it is like Batman. There's something where Jesus has just gotten inside to the most powerful parts of my motives and to my um, motivations, okay? Look, for some of you, you'll respond better if we look and say, okay, mm, all right, this is a little weird for me, uh, a little weirded out by where you've been going less. Where in the world are you getting this? How do you get this from the Bible? Well, this is a very good study. For the next 10 minutes, I just want to go racing through how often the Bible uses this language of you being in him or in Christ. It's everywhere. But before we start into that, I've really got to give a head nod to the guy who was one of my professors. You hear Kirk talk about him all the time, uh, Dr. Doug Kelly. 
uh, who was uh, a, a professor of uh, Curtin Mines and a couple other folks, uh, when we were in seminary, who actually had done some great research on a Scottish theologian from the uh, sort of um, very pre-Reformation days, uh, who had done some work on this question of why is there anything? What is the big overarching story of the Bible? And his name was Richard of St. Victor. And basically, St. Victor said that if God is love, like John says that he is, then it must mean that there was someone for him to love from before the foundations of the earth, which is crazy. But if that's the case, and there's love at the center of the universe, what then is the purpose of the Bible? What is the purpose of human history? And here's what Richard of St. Victor said. The purpose of human history is God going out to find a bride for his son. There it is. It's God the Father giving to his son the greatest gift that any father could give to his son, and that is a bride. Hence, human history. I'm kind of fascinated by that. And frankly, this talk about union with Christ kind of fits that mold. And if you think about it, whether you're thinking about your salvation in history past, present, or future, you can conceive of it all with this idea of being deeply connected to Christ. First of all, we see that in eternity past, there is a great idea of union with Christ. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. Now look, all of you have been out of shape about predestination. Put that off for about three weeks. We're going to talk about it the week after Christmas. What a great way to start the new year. A big fight in church. Um, but bear with me. I simply want you to remember, because I'm going to come back to it then, that when the Bible talks about what God was doing and thinking about you even before you were born, it does so with the idea that you are deeply and meaningfully connected to Christ. In Him you were chosen. We were chosen in Him. Secondly, it's because we were in Christ uh, that when Jesus died and rose again from the dead, that we participated in that thing. Uh, you know, smart alecky uh, seminary students uh, will sometimes say to you, well, when did you become a Christian? And they'll say, well, I became a Christian about 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem called Calvary. And again, you want to be like, thanks for that. Don't talk to me ever again. Um, <laughs> but the problem is, is the Bible actually talks that way. Romans 6, 2 through 11. You could look at uh, 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 Ephesians 2, 7 where over and over again we find Paul saying, in Him we have redemption through His blood. That when Jesus shed His blood on the cross, and we talk about all that great redemption that went on back there, that was conceived of while we were connected to Him. All that redemption occurred when we were in Christ. Third, we also believe that there was a moment in time, not always apprehended by us, when we were born again when our hearts of stone were taken out and replaced with a heart of flesh. And we find out that even then we were born again in Him. We've got there Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We were created in Him. When we became Christians, it was all done with this idea of us being deeply and meaningfully connected to Him. Fourth, the new life that we live in Christ. Did that go away again? Man, this is amazing to me. The new life that we have in Him. Um, 
is one that occurs in us. Play that. Okay. Is one that occurs in Christ. Right? That is, there is a, there, there's a cleansing, there's a renewal that's going on uh, of us being um, uh, created anew. Look at Romans 6. This is a fascinating verse and one that, you, that is almost impossible to understand. We were therefore buried with him in baptism into death. In other words, there's a sense in which this costume I'm wearing of Christ is the costume that I'm wearing that my death occurred because he died, that God is counting his death as if it was mine. And therefore the sin that deserves death has already been paid for. The wages of sin is death, we hear. Yes, and no one gets away with their sin unless they die. And the believer stands up and says, I died. But the reason why I died, according to Romans 6, is so that I could be raised again into newness of life. Finally, or next, we find that we fall asleep in him. This is our dying. That is, we find that believers eventually die in Christ. Even death itself, even though it separates our body from our spirit for a very brief time, in the end, it, it, it is going to be a death that's in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. There's something cool about the fact that, that Paul can't even bring himself to use the word death. <laughs> he didn't die, he just fell asleep. It's just going to sleep. I love it because that person is so alive. Finally, it is in Christ. Eternity future in which we will picture our salvation as well. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Indeed, if we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. And that's not just a glory now that we've experienced now, but in the future, our future will be determined by this deep, powerful, intimate connection. Are you getting the point? The perspective of a true Christian is one that covers the whole expanse of eternity and it's all wrapped up with this idea of you being in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, and so we will be with the Lord forever. This is the way John Murray says, I know this is quite small writing, but he says, what is it that binds past and present and future together in the life of faith and in the hope of glory? Why does the believer entertain the thought of God's determinate counsel with such joy? Why can he have patience in the perplexities and adversities of the present? Why can he have confident assurance with reference to the future and rejoice in hope of the glory of God? It is because, this is so good, it is because he cannot think of past, present, or future apart from union with Christ. Apart from union with Christ, we cannot view past, present, or future with anything but dismay and Christless dread. By union with Christ, the whole complexion of time and eternity is changed and the people of God may rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Wow, that is huge. Look, all I'm saying is the most regular way in which the Bible tells Christians to refer to themselves is with this idea of being in Him, of being with Him, that there's an intimacy there. One last question and I'll finish with this. Where did Paul get this? Well, a guy named Dennis Johnson in his book, The Message of Acts, tells a wonderful story about Saul walking along the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. He's been given a court order by the Jewish rulers to persecute Christians. And on the way, he is knocked down by a huge beaming person. 
literally to the ground. So bright is the light that it blinds him for a few days, as a matter of fact. And in the midst of that exchange, there's a very interesting, the first words that Saul has with King Jesus go something like this. Now remember, he's already been knocked down. Pow! Saul! Saul! Why are you persecuting me? Which is really kind of funny after you get knocked down. Pow! Why are you persecuting me? The very natural question was like, ah, you just knocked me down. Who's persecuting you? And of course, inevitably, since he's been knocked down, the question is, well, who are you, Lord? And what's the response that he gets? Isn't it weird? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, you could, you could understand if Paul sort of stopped, had he not been blinded by the great light. You could understand if he just sort of went out and was like, oh, 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 okay, now I've seen where the problem is. There's clearly been a mistake. Um, I was going to persecute these Christians down in Damascus. You, however, I wouldn't even presume to mess with. For Pete's sake, you're far too glorious. You're clearly too powerful. I wasn't messing with you. I was going after these Christians. And it did not take long before Paul began to realize that the response that would come from Jesus was something like this. Hey, you know what? It's the same thing. Because if you want to understand me, I want you to see me in my people. And if you want to understand my people, it's only because they are in me. Going after me is the same as going after them. And going after them is the same thing as going after me. You want to know why? Because our union, our communion is so intimate and so powerful that in the midst of that, that's where we see their true identity. Now that is powerful. It's huge. So much so that the old... uh, the great sort of 20th century Puritan, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor who served in, uh, a Welsh pastor who served in London for years and years and years. And you got to read his books and his commentaries. They're fantastic. Go by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a double last name there. Lloyd-Jones used to, uh, used to have a, a conversations with people uh, in evangelistic opportunities where he would say, well, so now after we've had this conversation about Jesus and the cross, um, uh, do you think that you're a Christian? Are you a Christian? And he said in one of his sermons that over and over again, people would look at him and they would say, well, pastor, I'm trying. And he would say, then you don't understand the first thing about Christianity. He was a little grumpy. He said, because he's not, Christianity is not, I'm trying. Christianity is, Jesus did something. And I am in him. And therefore, all of the merit, all of the joy, all of the accomplishment, all of the holiness, all of the glorification, all of the perspective, everything that I am is in Him. It's all about Him. And I'm in Him. And because I'm in Him, all that accrues to me. Jeffrey Lancaster used to tell this great story just to freak college students out. About what Jeffrey was the the RUF campus minister prior to me back in the 90s and really was one of the guys who helped plant this church. And he used to say, what if there was a book that had everything you ever said, thought, or did? Thick book, small writing, but it was there. And you had it. You had to keep it around because everything you said, thought, or did was inside that book. It was heavy inside your backpack, right? Um, But one day you get back to your dorm and you suddenly realize that you left it. You left it in the grove at one of the picnic tables. You forgot it and it's sitting there. And so in a panic you know, sweating and everything, you go racing back across campus to go retrieve your book. 
But as you turn that corner around the union and look into the, into the, uh, the, the picnic tables there, you see there's this huge crowd rallied around your picnic table looking through your book and you're absolutely and completely horrified, are you not? You're having a little bit of a panic attack just thinking about this, this illustration. Les, can we move on to something else? Thank you very much. I don't want to be this way for worship. But all of a sudden, as you draw closer, what you realize is that the words people are reading out as they look through your book are the words of the New Testament and the works and the, and the doings and the sayings of Jesus of Nazareth. That's union with Christ. <laughs> that my story has become his story. And his story has become my story. Jesus became my sin, and God killed him for it. <laughs> the passion of the, of the New Testament is not a compliment to us. It's what we, it required him. But that means that in his resurrection, his newness of life is now my story. I was crucified in him. It all counts towards me. It all accrues towards me. It all connects us in this powerful thing. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to, start, we're going to continue to look at this. Next, and actually, next week, we're going to dive into this question, well, what problems does the idea of union with Christ solve? And then we're going to talk about how do I abide in Christ? What is the means by which I do that? <laughs> 